So today I want to chat to you about uh, Jing essence. So this is because it's one of the most requested topics, or the most worried about, I should say, especially about, especially young male practitioners mostly, who come into these arts, Qigong, Meidan, Tai Chi, whatever, any of the internal arts, and then they've read something about Jing essence and the importance of it, and then they get paranoid, mostly because obviously if you've ever been in these arts for five minutes and you've read anything about them, you'll see the book say that excessive sexual activity um, will deplete the jing. So then what happens is young males come in primarily and they worry about how to lead a normal uh, sex life or a normal life in general alongside their practice and their cultivation. And actually there's all kinds of worries and fears around it and people entering into unnatural uh, habits with regards to their life. So it is something to discuss. But I will say, um, I'm going to come at it from a cultivator's point of view rather than a pure Chinese medical point of view because they're not the same. Chinese medical point of view is very much about how to restore the kidneys of a sick person so that they have a decent level of health. That's the basis of it, right? So therefore the teachings in Chinese medicine or classical medicine are really about that, aren't they? How to nourish the kidneys, the organ associated with the jing, how to nourish the qi and how to get the body nice and healthy so that they can function properly. Then you have the um, cultivator's view, which is a little different, and some of the Chinese medicine teachings apply and some don't. So that's what I'm going to discuss. It's more the cultivator's point of view, because that's primarily who I teach. I also think that if your kidneys or your jing is deficient from a Chinese medical point of view, you should primarily go to a qualified Chinese medical practitioner for assistance. I would also say that I'm going to talk about this largely from the male perspective. So that doesn't mean that it's not relevant to women. It is, um, but there are a couple of nuances that are a little different for women. So I have in mind, in fact, the Jing doesn't even sit in the same place in women. Most of the Chinese medicine books that talk about your, your Jing is from a male perspective. There's very little to do with women. So I want to, I'll do women separately um, in another video, but now for males, but still 90% of the information will be the same. It'll just be a couple of nuances, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about women's bodies late, later. So then the other thing is it'll be a little bit wordy. Um, I do get criticized for talking too much and making it too wordy, but I think realistically there's a couple of things. One, I'm naturally quite a talkative person anyway. I'm an extrovert and I like to talk. And secondly, I think these topics are complex and intricate, so therefore they require a lot of discussion in order to cover all of the nuances. I don't think you can do it briefly. Now, I don't think that when I explain it, it'll be complicated, it'll be simple, for sure, because I think if you understand something, you can normally make it fairly black and white um, and fairly easy to follow, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you reduce it down to 10 words. Now, sometimes the criticism has been, you know, like too much words, too much speaking, and then someone will... There's a couple of bit. There's three people in particular I can think of who watch my videos and then try to do like a succinct version afterwards. In fact, I think what I say fuels their YouTube channels because what happens is they watch my clips and then make their own one. And normally it starts with, oh, too much talking, let me do it properly. And then what happens is when I watch their videos, it's wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because they take an overly simplistic view of it because they have overly simplistic levels of knowledge. Um, and they miss all of the complexity and nuance because if we're going to discuss something complex, there are nuances to it. And these arts are not simple. I know people would like them to be, but they're actually quite intricate and quite complex, which is why in ancient times people would spend their lifetimes studying them. These days people do 10 minutes and maybe they've done a degree in Chinese medicine or they've done a 
Qigong for five years and they think that they understand the subject, but it would it's almost arrogant to assume that people hundreds of years ago, even a couple of generations ago, whatever, were so stupid that they took an entire lifetime to understand something and study it in such detail, something that we could do in 10 minutes and write on a Facebook post. So therefore, these the subjects are complicated. An example of this is that I went to, okay, last year it was. Was it last year or the year before? I don't know. Time flies. It's funny, isn't it? So recently, <laughs> within the last couple of years, I was sat down with, with, with my main teacher and the subject of Jing or Essence came up. Um, and the conversation turned into him giving me a three-hour lecture on Jing, on Essence. Now, bearing in mind that Jing is considered one of the foundation treasures, one of the three, the one of the Sambao, the three fundamental essences, energies of the body, if you like, Jing, Qi, and Shen. So therefore, I've studied it quite extensively. I have a degree in Chinese medicine. I've also been apprenticed to two different Chinese medicine teachers in the East, so studied their systems as well. So Chinese medicine knowledge is quite extensive. I know the, the, the classics of Chinese medicine quite extensively because I've had to study them. I've also done Qigong since I was age 14 and Neigong with two different lineages. And I've been involved in these arts my entire life. And I looked at a lot of essence-based stuff and, and study a lot. And I'm, I'm a copious studier, like I really want to understand something. And yet, after all those years, I was still able to have someone sit down for three hours and give me a completely different take on Jing. Nothing he said clashed with what I've heard before, but it was just a completely different take. Because these subjects are so intricate and complex that you can't nail them all down to just a few simple facts. You just can't. If you want to Say you take the model, Jing Qi Shen, okay, which most people know, essence, energy, spirit. Now, if you were to break each of those three components, stages of training, dare I say, down into their absolute detail and study them as much as you can, you have the entire of the cultivation path right there. It, it's all there. It, Chinese arts like this work for me like this, okay, a little different from some other traditions, is, you know, like on a computer, you get a, a zip folder, you know, a folder with a zip on it, and you click on it, and, and if you know what a zip folder is, I'm so bad with computers, I think this is what they are, you open them up and loads of stuff comes out, like a zip file is a way of compressing a lot of data down into a simple one folder that you can transfer between computers easily and stuff. Sorry, computer programmer nerds, if that's too simple. But um, the terms in Chinese teachings are very similar. So when we say Jing, what we have is this entire... <laughs> pantheon of knowledge that is compressed into this one single term. So when you're studying it, you have to unpack all of the stuff that exists under that term. It makes it a little different from Western language. Or this is how I see the difference. Some people see the difference in Chinese and Western as being like poetic versus um, sort of literal or, or something like this. But to me, the difference is if I have a word in English, say I say essence. It means a particular thing. It has a very clear definition. Whereas within some of the cultivation arts, although there is a definition to the term, it's also an umbrella term for a whole pantheon of knowledge that you have to study under that, under that umbrella, you know. So the study of Jing Qi and Shen is a very long and intricate study indeed. So if we're going to talk about Jing, then I'll need to look at it from a cultivation perspective because it's a little different from the Chinese medical. Now, firstly, I must be clear on something that when we say Jing, actually, we mean Yuan Qi. And what I mean by this is not that they're the same thing, but when 
Yuan Qi is something that is a little confusing to some people, but most of the teachings with how to replenish what we call the Jing really means Yuan Qi. It's primarily Yuan Qi. So most of the Chinese medical teachings about Jing are actually about Yuan Qi. It's just splitting hairs. So I'm only pointing that out just in case you're familiar enough with the terminology to know the difference, because your Jing is a is, is essentially your Wan Qi in an unmanifest or static form. So it's a different thing. But because, because we want to keep things workable, and they're only words that enable us to communicate, you can almost forget that. And if you don't know the difference, then definitely forget that, because I'm going to use the word Jing, or essence, during this talk to refer to that. Okay, so Jing and essence. Jing and essence is what I will use, even though it's a slightly incorrect way of using the term. It's like the conversational way, if you like, or the, the practical way, rather than actually sort of breaking it down into, into the correct jargon. So we're going to use the word Jing or essence. Now, Jing or essence, from a Chinese medicine perspective, is very closely related to your health, of course. Now, think of health like this. This is how I'm going to view it. And it's maybe a slightly different way from, from some people, but health is efficiency of the body's functioning, right? So if you take this, this line, and this is like, I don't know, verbose health, like perfect health, then really this means your body is functioning efficiently and your mind, right? Everything is functioning efficiently. Your organs are functioning efficiently. Hormonal systems function efficiently. Nervous systems function efficiently. Mind is functioning efficiently. It's all efficient, right? Now, as that deficient efficiency goes down, so does my health, right? It stops running quite so well. Very basic. So if I increase the efficiency of my body's insides, it takes me up the health. And this is really what we're doing through anything like Chinese medicine, by changing the condition inside, or through cultivation or whatever. We're trying to change the efficiency of the body's functioning. Now, when it gets to a certain level of efficiency, it hits this level here, good health, right? But it's still within the confines of conventional capabilities, you know, like it's normal. You, you can be highly intelligent, highly healthy, highly strong, healthy fit, maybe something like that. But, and of course you can specialize in it. You could take your fitness to even higher levels, higher than me for sure and stuff like that. But it's still, you know what I mean, like it's a conventional thing. Now there are ways to increase the efficiency of the body's inside mechanisms until you go beyond what is normal for human beings. And this is really where I sit on the definition of Qigong or Neigong training. Because Qigong or Neigong training is divided into a couple of camps. There is the camp that believes that the whole thing is a metaphor for physiological processes. So, qi is breath, or qi is blood, or qi is lymph, or whatever, you know. And the ancient teachings from the masters were about how to breathe deeply and relax and maximize the body's health. There is in the other school of thought that says, no, actually, there is a whole other realm of subtle practice uh, that go beyond normal human capabilities. So they develop the ability to build an actual substance that we might call qi within our body. And when this substance is maximized and taken beyond the normal limits of what is functional for a regular human, then we can actually start to build it up like charging a battery. And then that qi, this energy, can be put out of the body if you want, emitted, or it can be used to circulate inside or to power up mechanisms or inside us or used for cultivation. But we can't do that if the energy is lower than normal human functioning. Okay, And this is the basis for Qigong and Neigong training to me, is how to increase the efficiency of the body's functioning to take it beyond the normal human capacity. Now, if you look at that, you kind of have the clash that exists in the internal arts world anyway between the two different 
camps because the camp that believes it's all physiological have never actually had the experience of anything beyond the norm. So therefore, on the whole, sometimes they've had it and denied it, but who knows. But, you know, they've never had the experience of something beyond the norm. So therefore, they fall back on the experience that they've had. So then they will say things like, well, I've had 50 years experience and it's all physiological, it's all normal. Okay, and, and that is their experience, so that becomes their reality. Then you have the other camp, which sometimes is based on belief, sometimes on faith, okay, fair enough, but sometimes many of those people have had an experience beyond the norm, beyond what is normal human functioning or normal human capability. Sometimes they've had experience from a Qigong or Negong master to them, or maybe from a Tai Chi master onto them, something that's out of the ordinary or whatever, or maybe they've had that experience themselves. A lot of people have stumbled onto experiences beyond the norm. And although they can't explain it or they can't recreate it or they can't establish a foundation in it so that it's the norm for them, it has given them a glimpse into something so that they know, oh, there's something beyond human potential. Now what standard human potential? So then what you have is two camps that clash because the camp that believes only in the physiological will go, well, this is my experience, so therefore this is my reality and therefore you're all mad. Whereas this group will go, well, I've experienced something out of the norm and you can't explain it with what you're saying, so therefore you're wrong, and that's the division. Now, obviously, both camps are going, both groups are going from their own experience, and that's going to be what their arts are. But just so you know, I'm in that camp, okay? Very early on in my training, I was taken to uh, places where teachers enabled me to experience things that were beyond the norm, that were beyond normal human capability. And I was shown that very young. And then even within my own training, I've managed to cultivate enough chi to go beyond what is what would be considered standard physiological functioning, as have many people that I know. So therefore, that places me into camp B, if you like, or whatever. So therefore, when I'm explaining essence or qigong or negong, it's from that perspective. I do not well, I know, it's not even that I do not believe, I know that Qigong is not limited to simply learning how to breathe, okay, or how to move your body. It is more complicated than that and goes a lot deeper. But I do understand why people are in the other camp, because if you've not experienced it, how would you know? So if, so, so I just want you to know, when I'm talking about Jing, this is what I mean. And, and, or Qigong, this is what I mean. This side of it, it is esoteric, it is beyond normal human capability, it takes you beyond the normal functioning of a human body if you know how to work with it. Now, if we also look at another term here, mechanisms. I'm talking about mechanisms inside the body. And this will all become relevant to cultivation in a minute, why it's related to essence. It's when I talk about a mechanism, you have different levels of them. So a mechanism might be, I don't know, your heartbeat. I would, I'm using that, that's a mechanism. Or peristalsis of the intestines, that's a mechanism. Production of hormones from the glands, uh, the lungs causing an exchange of gases in the body to power up your cells and metabolism, all that. Like, all of those things are called what I'm calling a mechanism. So science, biological science, has managed to break down many, many mechanisms and finding more and more, aren't they, all the way down to sort of cellular level of membranes and stuff. Like, the mechanisms are crazy. Now, you have normal mechanisms and I would consider those mechanisms required for your health. So the mechanism of pumping the blood, the mechanism of breathing, exchanging gases, blah, blah, blah. Those are needed for your health, okay? But you then have subtle mechanisms. So subtle mechanisms are something that is beyond your, 
you're not able to access at the beginning, put it that way, because these subtle mechanisms include things like yin and yang energy exchanging within the body, magnetism and electricity pulling on each other to larger degrees than is normal for the human body when you're just untrained, channels opening, crossover points between channels opening, chakra, like all of these things, okay, chakra are very, very far away, but like all of those things that are discussed within esoteric texts that the people in Campe will just dismiss as superstition or crazy religious stuff or metaphors for something that they've managed in 10 minutes, even though it took people 50 years in the mountains to try to work out, they, they will attribute it to just physiological, like metaphor, basically, an, an analogy. Now, the subtle mechanisms in your body rely upon the strength of the jing. So look at it this way. If I access a subtle mechanism, say, I don't know, opening a channel, say, right, and I want to mobilize the chi within the body to open a channel, if the jing is not very strong, then what will, will happen from a cultivator's point of view is that you don't have enough juice to open the channel. So sometimes you're doing something and you're working on a mechanism and you're trying to get an energy center open and you can't do it. The jing is too weak, it cannot open. So you can hammer away at the technique all day long and sometimes you can adjust the technique and you can do all these same things. It still won't work because the essence is not strong enough. It is not consolidated enough to power up your training. So even aside from health, your jing is required for cultivational in a practice. And a lot of the reason that people can't access the subtle is because their jing is weak. Their jing might not be weak in a medical perspective, but it is weak on a subtle perspective. And that's what I want to discuss. So jumping back to medicine. When we talk about your jing, we have various correspondences with the essence, which I won't go into because I'm sure most of you watching this, listen to my rambles, have read a basic Chinese medicine book or a Qigong book. And you know that there are things corresponding with the essence, such as your kidneys, the health of your kidneys. If your kidneys are weak, Jing is weak, or vice versa. Okay. How about, uh, you know, uh, the adrenals? That would be a physical thing related to the kidneys. So if the adrenals are burnt out through overwork or overstress or being a high-flying son of a gun, living on cocaine for years and years, that's going to burn out the Jing as well. Your hormonal system. So the hormonal system and the chemicals in your body produced by your hormonal system, your testosterone, your growth hormones, stuff like that, in case of males especially, are closely related to the jing and the essence. So if this becomes weak, and yes, Chinese medicine people, you can switch it out with yuan qi, I know. But if the essence or the weak starts to become, uh, starts to become depleted, the essence or the jing, then those hormones can become out of whack and stuff like this and all kinds of stuff. You then have your lower back because you have a branch of the kidney channel that runs through to hold up the lumbar. And as they become weak, the lumbar will collapse. And that takes drops all your weight into your lower body, which then pressurizes the knees and patella tendons. So all of the symptoms of kidney burnout or, or kidney qi burnout, or let's say jing burnout for simplicity's sake, Chinese medicine people, I know it's the wrong use of the term, but I'm talking to Qigong people. If this is, becomes weak, your jing is weak, then you're going to get what? You get tinnitus, and you get muggy-headed, and you get bad back, and you get weak knees, you get low libido, low fertility, and then all the other signs, frequent urination, all, all these things. Like, there's all kinds of symptoms related to the weakness of the, of the kidneys. Now, most of these are to do with the physiological mechanisms that are inside your body, the adrenals, the hormones the uprightness of the spine, perhaps we could say the connection of the marrow of the brain to the kidneys. These are sort of standard mechanisms to me. Now, if those mechanisms are impacted, it means you have these symptoms, right? It means that essentially your jing is at a stage where you probably need Chinese medical help. 
Okay, that would be what I would advise. More than anything else, you can rest and stuff, but you may as well go find a Chinese medicine practitioner. Don't go find one that's westernized, that uses dry needling and stuff like that. That's the wrong kind. Um, and don't go to one that, try to avoid ones that have been to a Chinese medicine college that have over-rationalized everything. You want someone who uses very um, traditional or well, traditional Chinese medicine means something else, but uses a very classical Chinese medical model, so they're actually looking at the kidneys and the, and the kidney chi. So you want to go to someone and they can assist you with herbs and acupuncture and all those kind of things. They can advise you on diet and activity and things like that and hopefully boost you up. But all a Chinese medicine practitioner will do, all they will do, and this is speaking as a Chinese medicine practitioner, is be able to boost you back up to, at most, what is normal human functioning. So they can't take you beyond. You can't take the kidney strength or the jing strength, let's forget kidneys, you can't take the foundation of the essence beyond normal functioning for the human body. You just can't. The Chinese medicine cannot do that because Chinese medicine is designed to get you back to healthy. It's focused on getting you healthy, right? So no amount of herbs are going to take you beyond the norm. No amount of acupuncture is going to take you beyond the norm. No amount of rest or whatever is going to take you beyond the norm. It cannot happen. You need to understand how to maximize your jing through practice and cultivation, through the conditions of changing who you are. This is why, for me, lots of the mechanisms of jing are hinted at in Chinese medicine classics, but not they don't go into them explicitly because Chinese medicine is largely focused on health. Okay. So there's my first step. If you have issues with a jing that is creating tinnitus and all those kind of things, bad back, bad, weak knees, tiredness. Chinese medicine practitioner to help to try to get you back to healthy and they can advise you. But then there's the next step beyond that, isn't there? Beyond normal health towards cultivation. Now for somebody who is after getting the subtle mechanisms established in your body, you require the Jing to be at that level. So you need to go beyond what a Chinese medicine practitioner can assist you with or beyond what health can help you with or beyond what standard herbs can help you with. Admittedly, to argue with myself, there are alchemical herbs, that is true, but alchemical herbs are rare, difficult to understand, and they're also ingredients that are hard to get hold of, and most people can't access them. So if you can't access alchemical herbs, then forget it, because standard Chinese medicine, or even ancient Chinese medicine, is not going to take you beyond normal health. So herein lies, before we take that step from health practitioner or medicine towards cultivator, herein lies one of the big confusions with Qigong. When people rely upon Chinese medical knowledge to fill in the Qigong blanks, they're actually limiting Qigong's potential. So because Qigong is related to Chinese medicine and Chinese thought, obviously, and Neigong as well, and there is more literature on Chinese medicine for sure, people overlay it into it. So they will talk about the substances in Qigong, Jing Qi Shen, for example, and others, but Jing Qi Shen for now, from a Chinese medical point of view, and then assume that's it. So what they'll say is, well, I've done an acupuncture degree, and I do Qigong, and I do Tai Chi, and Jing is this, because that's what I learned in my acupuncture degree. This becomes an error, or your herbal degree, or whatever. This becomes an error, because now you are limiting the potential of that practice to a medical level of practice, meaning you are limiting it to a thing that makes you healthy. So then what happens is you make the next leap of faith to go, oh, well, Qigong and Neigong and Neidan and internal arts are to make you healthy. Tai Chi is different. It's for fighting, of course. <laughs> That's their view. But all of these arts are to make you healthy. So th well, then you end up with a weird contradiction. Why would monks 
or not even monks, uh, renunciates, individuals, whatever, weirdos, disappear for years on end, 50 years, give up their families and their life to study how to be healthy. They could do that in normal conventional society. So therefore, they weren't just trying to become normal or relax, healthy or relax. They were trying to do something else. And the only reason you would give up your life and go away into the mountains or into seclusion to study these things, as we know they did, is in order to move beyond what you could achieve in your normal life. Now, if people manage to be healthy in their normal life, then therefore that means the arts. It suggests that perhaps it's for something more. It's for something more. So Chinese medical knowledge will give you how to become healthy, okay? And it will also, like I say, mistakenly give people the view that these arts are only for health. They are not. The foundation is health. The foundation is being well. The foundation is being strong. And the foundation is being robust. Because that means your body functions to an efficient level. And Chinese medical teachings can get us there. But now, how do we take it further? How do we look at the subtle mechanisms that sit deeper than health or further than health? How do we go there? And this bridge from normal functioning to higher functioning, if you like, is really where the art of Qigong and Neigong or alchemy become really, really fascinating and also where it's mostly lost its way. And this is really where the excitement for the journey into Qigong, Neigong, alchemy, internal arts in general, whatever, whatever you want to say, uh, really grabbed me. This is where my excitement came from because to be healthy is not good enough for me because I know I can be healthy by regulating my mind, a little bit of breathing practice and a little bit of simple mindfulness wouldn't go amiss. I can regulate my diet, I can exercise, and I can look after myself and make myself healthy. In fact, martial arts did that for me anyway, pretty much, uh, aside from the occasional poisoning of my body that I partake in. So health wasn't enough, you know. And I'm not a natural therapist, you know. Like, my study of Chinese medicine is, is fairly uh, complete, uh, fairly deep. What's the word? Comprehensive. Okay, it is true. I've studied it a lot. And I don't know everything about Chinese medicine. Who does? But I, did, I know the subject fairly well. So... Even with my background in Chinese medicine, which started at age 14, and I'm now 42, 43, I don't know, something like that, around there, in my 40s, anyway, so it's been a lot of years. I'm still not a natural therapist, like, it's not, what I mean is, it's not my calling to treat people, not really, so therefore, my practice of the arts, that's not enough, it's not enough to be healthy and to help people with health, it has to be for more, and the internal arts become fascinating beyond that stage because this is where the subtle mechanisms come in. So you could argue that everything up to health is a physical mechanism. So when we repair the kidneys, we repair the adrenals, the hormonal system, blah, blah, blah. So open up your spine, all that kind of stuff. So in a way, the kind of materialist view on Chinese medicine is not 100% inaccurate with regards to kidney health and stuff. But once we get to subtle mechanisms in the body, it's different. Because just like you have physical mechanisms to power the physiological parts of your body, there are subtle mechanisms to um, power the subtle aspects of your body. And whether you want to believe it or not, your body, your being, is comprised of numerous layers. Hindus, call, uh, yogis call them sheaths. Taoists call them bodies or realms or whatever. That layers that exist kind of overlaid on you and behind you like a basically just like an increasing level of subtle mechanism and physiology within your body they are there this is what they were discussing this is why they drew channels this is why the yogis have their shushumma and the Eden megala and this is why 
Taoists drew out their alchemical channels and all of these power centers in the body and all of these kind of things. They weren't analogies for physiological components. They weren't stupid. If they meant the lungs, they'd say the lungs. These are actual subtle anatomy that exists within your, your, your body. And we want to access and power them up. Now, if your body is healthy, it is true that these subtle mechanisms will function to a certain degree. So you will have a certain degree of energy movement within certain channels. But if you want to then maximize your potential and take yourself beyond normal human power, then the subtle mechanisms must be supported by the subtle mechanism of the Jing, refined to a high degree, which is why refinement of Jing is one of the first stages in our chemical training. How do we explain this? So let's look at this. Let's look at a subtle mechanism. Let's look at a subtle mechanism. Let's do the Dantian. Okay, because it's a very uh, standard mechanism within the body that is discussed a lot. And then what we'll do is we'll transfer that mechanism onto other bits of the body. But it's easy for me to explain the Dantian as a subtle mechanism first. Now, the Dantian is not your hips. It is not your center of uh, gravity. It's, not, it's none of those things, okay? It is a separate structure, or at least how it's discussed within alchemy and Qigong. Now, some people will argue about uh, semantics and terms because the term Dantian came later, sure, but it's just a term. They were already discussing prior to that the accumulation of qi within your body and the focusing of energy here. The term Dantian came later. It doesn't matter. There is a mechanism that sits within your body that is used to build up qi within your system. And it works like this on a most rudimentary level. You have two forms of qi called yin and yang qi. Okay. Most of you are familiar with this if you study Neigong, certainly with me or with other teachers, are yin and yang qi. Now, yin and yang qi is a little different from Chinese medicine. It's not to do with thermal properties. It's a little different. It's a different use of the term. And yin qi is something that holds form. Essentially, it is a field, a kind of magnet. So the first step for the Dantian is to take that magnet and close it so that it becomes smaller. Think of it like a sphere. And while the sphere is out here, it's not pressurized. We call that dispersed. The qi is dispersed or the qi is leaking is sometimes a term, although there's other types of leaks. And when the yin field comes in and yin is gathered, which is the phrase, okay, people think it's an analogy, the yin is gathered, then that field builds. And what it does is it starts to squeeze and compress inside the body. Now, different Neigong systems will do it different ways. Some will do it by targeting this field specifically. A lot of Qigong systems will do this. Other systems will do it by using another mechanism and as a byproduct it gathers. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's direct or whether it's indirect. That field must come together. So what happens then? This container here, as it closes, will squish or crush anything that's in the middle. It will compact and condense so that when it is put under pressure, it will start to convert. So what is put into this field is yang qi, which is a kind of energy that feels like electricity, has a lot of electrical qualities, but is not. It, for now, we think of it like electrical energy that flows through the nerves and flows in a linear passage through the body. Now, this energy moves around inside your, your system. Okay? It powers up the cells, uh, it powers up the tissues, it causes your nerves to be stimulated. It does all kinds of things, normal functioning for the body. But... If that field is closed and the yang qi is put inside it, then as it squeezes and it compresses the qi, something they call churning the qi or swallowing the qi, all these kind of terms, as that field compresses, it causes the yang qi within that space to be squeezed and then refined, and it will convert. So you have lots of analogies within Chinese medicine for diamonds or precious stones, things that are formed under pressure. They talk about gathering, consolidating, 
Why? To thicken this substance up inside the center of the being. Now, the Dantian is so rare that I've been to... Okay, well, forgive me. I don't, I don't mean to be damning. You, you can't do what you don't know, and you can't help the knowledge you don't have. So it's not, it's not positive or negative about anyone. It's just a fact. Like, sometimes people think... I know in the public arena that people think that I am someone who's cross-trained all over the place and a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this and a bit of that. That's actually not true. I've had one, two, three, four main teachers, one after another. Okay, one after another. So when I was younger, I had one teacher, then on to another one I was with for a number of years, and then another one, and then one of the four main teachers. And the one I've been with now, I've been with uh, just under a decade, I think, or something like that. Okay, so these teachers are my trunk of my tree if you like. And these are the people I studied with, meaning that they have always had the final say on what I do and how I practice. They are the ones that I turn to for guidance. So they are the people that formulated my, my practice. Now alongside this, alongside this trunk of the tree, I've also gone out and seen what other people are doing. So that means I've gone to visit many other teachers and I'll go to see those teachers for two weeks or three weeks, maybe a month, something like that. Maybe I'll visit them a few times. Sometimes I'll go back, see what they're doing. Mostly I'm just getting to see how they work, how their system works, and also broadening my knowledge of the arts and meeting friends. Like it's great. So I've met, not hundreds, but wouldn't be surprised if it was a hundred. <laughs> like it's getting that way. Over all these years, my whole life, I've met lots of these other teachers and seen what they do. Now those teachers haven't, obviously meeting anyone has an influence on you, but their material doesn't come into what I teach. It's their thing, and I'm not qualified to teach this stuff. I just meet them and see what they're doing. So it means that as well as my main route of study, I do have quite a bit of experience of what lots of schools are doing. And I've been to everything from very, very deep Nagong traditions that other people are trying to access, but obviously can't because they think Westerners are banned from it and stuff like this. And I've met these guys and seen that and other systems and, and not studied with them, but just seen how they work. So I've seen deep systems uh, that aren't my own. And then I've also been to the contemporary stuff and the stuff people say is the place to be. And I've been to all the famous spots and the big mass-produced faux Taoist schools, all those kind of stuff. And I've contemporary wushu competition winning. I've been to all those too and had a look and normally a few weeks here and there. And within the Qigong schools, what I can say is that Dantian is rare. It's very, very rare. It's not very many people that have it. They don't know how to formulate it, let alone how to build the qi up inside it. It's just a rare thing. Now, that's insane for a tradition where people are constantly talking about the Dantian. It's talked about all the time. Dantian, Dantian, build the qi here, blah, 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 pack it in the Dantian, blah, blah, blah. Nobody has it, hardly, because they don't even have the basic mechanism established. So it goes to show that even if you have the method, even if you have, sorry, that's not true. <laughs> even if you have years and years and years of consistent practice, if you don't have the method, it won't work. You won't get it to consolidate, because I've met people who train for way more years than me, more years than I've been alive in their 60s and 70s who don't even have the start of a Dantian. Now, experience has shown me that Actually, teaching people doesn't take very long anyway. Most people I teach, within a short space of time, Dantian consolidates and they go, what the fuck is that? There you go, that's a Dantian, okay? It is a subtle mechanism that is beyond a normal functioning of the physical body. At this stage, your chi is not your breath, not your blood, not your lymph, whatever else they say it is. It is something different. It is something different. So when this field gathers and it compresses inside, okay, and it squeezes the Yang Qi to cause it to refine, what it does is it takes the Qi through a series of developmental stages. The first stage of your Qi is all it will do 
Let's help your body function in a normal, I say normal, that's quite major, isn't it? You know, it helps your body function. So the qi powers up your organs. So this is very similar qi to what we talk about in Chinese medicine. And oftentimes that qi is almost, almost, you could almost switch the terminology for standard biological, physiological methods and it would still be accurate because the qi is powering those things. Hope that makes sense. So cellular metabolism, stuff like that. Okay, fair enough. Normal stuff. But once the qi is thickened, it takes it to another level. Okay, so now it affects your body on another level. And I thicken it and takes it to another strata. I thicken it, takes it to another strata. And eventually you thicken it. It can affect the subtle mechanisms on your body to a very high degree. It's the opposite of what many people think. They think they have to make their qi thinner and more ethereal. Actually, you have to make your qi thicker and more dense in order for it to serve a bridge to the subtle levels of your body. And in order to do that, one of the mechanisms is the dantian densening that qi to take you to that stage. There's many analogies for that in Chinese medicine. And one of my favorite ones, I was talking with my mate Adam the other day in that another podcast we did, where one of the analogies is Bodhidharma, the real Dharma, not this idiot here, talking about the different depths of practice. So he's talking about skin depth, muscle depth, tissue depth, bone depth, you know, whatever. There's a few others. Different depths of practice. Now, eventually, well, essentially what he's saying is that as the chi is thickened and moved on to denser stages, your work takes you to different depths within your system, different mechanisms within your body, out of the physiological towards the more profound. And once it gets to a thick enough level, the chi actually starts to hit the subtle mechanisms in the body and gives you access to nagong and alchemy. Okay? If that doesn't make any sense, I don't blame you. Let's simplify it to keep the people who say, I'll talk too much happy. If you can understand how to build the subtle mechanism of the Dantian, you can compress and condense the qi so that it refines and it takes you to more subtle levels of practice. There we go. That was fairly succinct for me. If you don't know how to do that, then the qi will never take you beyond the standard physiological mechanisms of health. Okay? So here we have a subtle mechanism. The yin qi closes, the yang qi is compressed, converts and builds up within the body. Boom. Simple enough. Now that mechanism, the dantian, is not based upon physical anatomy. It's not based upon the muscles, the guts. It's not based upon the pelvis, the hip girdle, whatever. It's none of those things. It is literally a magnetism that is <laughs> pulled into the center of the body. And Qigong is about that. So Qigong is not an alignment art. It's not a form of Pilates or Rolfing or something, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. It, no, I don't know what that is. It's, <laughs> it's about, I shouldn't talk about things I don't know about. It's about getting those fields to gather in to hit the subtle level of the body. Okay, so if you understand that, that's a Dantian. Now you have other ones of these in the body. We might not call them a dantian, but they function in a very similar fashion. One of them is around the back. We call it the Ming fire, Ming Hua. The Ming fire is essentially another field of condensed qi that compresses the yang qi, the electrical energy through the nerves of your lower back until it forms a powerful energy in the base of the spine. And this powers up the kidneys as well as sending energy up through the spine into your brain. Now, if you're Ming fire is weak, it means the magnetic field of the yin qi is dispersed. So as the yang qi passes through, it doesn't build up, it just moves through your spine. If I condense that field, as the yang qi goes in, some of it gets trapped inside that field, condensed, warmed up, before some of it carries on through the spine. The result of this is that that condensed qi in there produces resistance, which produces a kind of heat, so we call it a fire on the base of the body. Now as an energetic palpator, Chinese medical-wise, if I put my hand near the back or of the body, and it's hot, 
I know probably that the Ming fire is strong. If it's cold or depleted or empty, the field is dispersed and the Ming fire is weak. So there what we have is a subtle mechanism. Okay? It is a field of yin qi gathering the yang qi. If the subtle mechanism is weak, it means that all of the gross mechanics mechanisms will be weak too. So if the subtle mechanism is dispersed, the kidneys become weak, the adrenals become weak, the lower spine becomes weak, the, the, the connection of the nerves into the brain becomes weak, the knees start to hurt. So in this way, the subtle mechanism affects the physiological or physical gross mechanism. And this is the basis of energetic health. Now you have another one on your perineum, on the meeting of yin, hua yin, that is another field that closes. And when it closes, it consolidates the yang qi in the base of the body, right on the bottom, on your perineum, on the sea of yin. So, let's look at this. If my kidneys are weak, from a medical point of view, that field is dispersed. If my kidneys are strong, that field gathers in. So in this way, the physical mechanism affects the yin mechanism. Now you have a form of qi that travels from your kidneys down your lower spine and into the perineum, where it collects in this magnetic field and it builds up and it creates warmth, heat and power down the bottom. If my kidneys become weak, say for example, okay, use this. How about if I have sex and I ejaculate? What will happen is that field disperses because we all know that sex depletes the jing, especially for males. Not so much for women actually, but mostly for males. So as I deplete it, the field disperses. The chi is not gathered there. The result is I will feel weaker around the base of my body. It's like the perineum disconnects, the hip disconnects, lower back disconnects. Not dangerously, it's not like a fall over or anything, but there's just, I don't feel gathered in, I don't feel consoled. It's like someone cut the strings on the corset and everything is just dispersed and just spread. And if you're a cultivator, you can feel it. You, you know, if you're a Qigong practitioner or a meditator, next time you have sex with somebody else or yourself, then uh, just feel what happens to that part of your body. Some people have never noticed the perineum and the hips and where the trochanter comes into your pelvis just feels weak and depleted, like ungathered, normally for half a day to a day, something like that, a few hours maybe, just because that field goes poof and just lets go, meaning it's not compressing the chi in that area. That goes on to that old wives' tale, isn't it? Like, of, well, it's considered an old wives' tale, but it's not. Boxers, Muhammad Ali and stuff, that wouldn't have sex the day before a boxing match because it made their legs weak and people will mock it. But we can see why. Because if that field disperses, everything is unraveled, the jing is not consolidated, and there's no power in the lower body. So people have known this for a long time. So sorry, I stopped a second there for a drink. A bit of sparkling water. Um, sorry, I'm talking really fast as well, I'm aware. Because <laughs> I'm trying to fit it in, because I'm aware there's a lot here. Um, and some of you who don't like wordy are probably checked out already, but those of you still going, well done. <laughs> so this subtle mechanism, you can always play it on half speed or something if you want, but this subtle mechanism in the base of the body, okay, so the chi squeezing, really is the energetic version of your jing gathering, okay? So you have the physical version, kidneys, lower back, adrenals, hormones. Okay, you then have the subtle energy version, which is the squeezing on the base of the body. Now, if you increase your physical health, the energetic health will go up too. But now as a cultivator, we go beyond it, okay? How to now consolidate it more, so it squeezes more to refine that chi. Because when I refine the chi, it powers up the subtle mechanisms within the body. It gives me access to the channels, access the ability to fill the dantian more, all kinds of things like this. Now, in some traditions, they'll do it with alchemical herbs, which are different from Chinese medical herbs and still very highly hidden, those formulas. 
but there are also practices for it and then there are also things you can do with regards to your mindset and your lifestyle and that's kind of the last part of this talk that's what I'll discuss so if you look at these mechanisms for example how about this there's two fields within the body. There are a form of magnetism that exists between the upper part of the body and the lower part of the body, okay? The abdomen and the, and the chest. And these two fields relate to each other. Now, if you've ever done any Qigong to a high level or Neigong, you'll know that there is a, a buffer and a, like a lack of desire for communication between the upper and lower body, meaning that the Qi will not move properly through those regions of the body. It becomes a big challenge. Um, so what happens is essentially once there is enough power in the system that chi will push together and combine and then more power is built up and this is a larger degree of filling. Now they named this fire and water mixing okay, with an alchemical terminology and if you ever read anything about alchemy you will see straight away that fire and water mixing comes up quite a lot. Now the reason they called it fire and water is complicated. It's a, story for another day um, to do with consciousness aspect related to these regions of the body but idiots in the modern day have thought that it meant just breathing you know or something like that which if they meant breathing they would say breathing or it was an analogy for stilling the mind no if they would say still the mind it's about two particular forms of chi that cannot communicate now if you're not at the level of taking your body's efficiency beyond standard health to the energetic realm, you won't know about this subtle mechanism, but if you built the Dantian and built the Qi, you will know. And most people that I teach after a while, or other teachers better than me, or worse than me, but who have these methods, will, will get their students. It's not long before that fire and water magnetic push-pull mechanism becomes apparent to you, but a lot of people get stuck there for a long time, which is why fire and water was discussed within alchemy, because they knew it was a problematic stage. And you'll plateau, and you can't do it, and you can't get this Qi to communicate. But then what happens is once you build the Jing past a certain level, there's enough strength within your system. The foundation of the Jing is consolidated so that, as they say, the Jing will affect the Qi or convert into the Qi, and then the Qi will push against each other nice and strongly, and then fire and water will mix, meaning that essentially this Yang Qi will begin to move up and down through the inside of your body. It is a higher degree of subtle anatomy that it doesn't matter how many times you say it, people that are on the physiological level will, will not believe in it or not agree, and why should they? They don't have any direct experience of it. But the analogies with an alchemy for these things, fire and water, dragon and tiger, whatever, you, lead and gold, all these things are analogies for forms of chi, forms of energy on the subtle level of the subtle anatomy that must be built initially through consolidating the jing and firming the jing, the foundation, so it's nice and strong. If the jing is not solid, you can still experience these mechanisms, but you can't make them work for you. So it means that some people with a high degree of subtlety will, or sensitivity will be able to see or feel or know about the mechanism, but they can't make it work. They can't refine it. They can't move beyond it. So it's just something they can look at. It's like they can see the engine, but they can't drive the car because the jing is not strong enough to make that mechanism do what it's supposed to do so that it, it transforms you. Okay, so this is another reason the Jing needs to be nice and strong. You cannot make these mechanisms do what they need to do on the level of Qi until the Jing is nice and solid. Within alchemical terminology, they say the Jing is consolidated until it refines the Qi and converts the Qi. But more accurately, I would say that the Jing is consolidated so that the Qi becomes thicker so that then the Qi converts as it needs to. Now, people using a Chinese medical model will use a different definition. They'll simply say the kidney chi produces a foundation for energy in the body and they think it's all about health, but it's not. It is not, it's not the same. Chinese medicine knowledge will not assist you at this stage. 
What needs to happen is that field needs to draw in and compress until the yang chi thickens enough that the subtle mechanisms within your body function. And this is the basis of qigong or the basis of internal arts study. So that is, there are many, many subtle mechanisms within the body. And this is basically what I teach most of the time, not online in, in these kind of podcasts, but in person, this is what I'm doing a lot of the time. And the more these subtle mechanisms kick in, the more qigong works. Because if you don't have the subtle mechanism, the qigong exercises do very little. So realistically, you won't like this. Take five qigong exercises. They all look different. One puts the arms up here, one puts the arms over here, one's got a fancy step, one does that, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> you got that set. All of the exercises will do pretty much the same. They won't do much different. Maybe they'll stretch a different joint. Maybe they'll relax you in a different way, but they won't be much different. So you could do any movements. You could even freeform a lot of Qigong, to be perfectly honest, and, and people do, and create whole sets, and it, it will still help you. It's still very really beneficial, but they're not differentiated in their function particularly well. But if the subtle mechanism is built to a very high degree, so you know how to refine the Jing and build the Qi, the basis of alchemy, the basis of Megong, then what happens is when you do those individual exercises, now they all work differently. Now each one becomes very powerful. So what it means is a Qigong exercise is not even very powerful to me until you have the mechanism built inside. This is why the basis for all of this kind of practice, if you're going to go deep, is to build the subtle anatomy through understanding the mechanisms of Jing and Qi particularly. Shen later, Jing and Qi particularly, so you can build this mechanism up, the proper subtle mechanisms that are beyond the standard mechanisms of normal human health and functioning, then when you do the practices, they will take your development to very high levels. It might be a weird analogy, it might not make sense to you, but I kind of think of the Qigong system as like a lever, a lever on the outside, and when I do the exercise, it's like pulling the lever to affect the energy on the middle. But if I haven't built the connection to the subtle by thickening the Qi and getting yin and yang to work for me, then I have no lever. So I do the exercise and it doesn't change me on the inside, okay? It just becomes a breathing relaxation exercise or something like this. And if you can understand that, you'll understand at least my view I'm not saying it's necessarily the truth, it's just my view of the truth. Disagree if you want, but you'll understand my view for why people don't understand the depth for the internal arts, why I didn't understand the depth for the internal arts for a long time. I'm not um, separating myself from that. And also, there's many depths I don't understand. This is just the level I'm at. But you can see why I think that people don't understand how far Qigong could go and why they reduce it to a physiological health exercise or a way to move the limbs or, or to breathe or something like that. You get that silly phrase, I don't like, here is a Qigong. Do this Qigong. Like the Qigong is an actual thing, like I've got a pocket of Qigong. There's this Qigong for the lungs, this Qigong. None of them are Qigong. Qigong means mastery, gong, mastery of, you know, like gong fu of qi. There's, they're not Qigongs. <laughs> you are using various tools and exercises to train extensively to give yourself qigong, to turn your kung fu into the level, your gong fu into the stage where your qi goes beyond health to create this powerful, subtle mechanism on the inside that transforms you. The qigong tools, exercises, are just that, just exercises to go through this process, but I need the subtle mechanisms there first. In order to do that, as much as anything, the Jing must be consolidated. So I believe this is what you call a continuity error, isn't it? <laughs> Where all of a sudden I've changed outfit, changed scene or whatever. Um, but that's because I had to dash out, so sorry. I got a certain way into this talk and then I had to go out and teach a class. So, and this is the day after. It was yesterday I recorded that first part. Mm. And today uh, I'll finish it off. So I'm back here in my funky 
Bugs Bunny shorts after a class to uh, yeah carry on uh, explaining to you about the the jing and the kidneys. I might have to move this though. This is to keep the uh, mosquitoes away. Works very well, but uh, I can't breathe. Also, if I could look a little bit uh, pastier than usual, I'm English. I'm supposed to be pale and pasty, aren't I? But if I look a bit pastier than normal in this podcast video, by the way, if you're watching the video. It's because I've been ill for a few days. Normally, I fight off illnesses quite well, but there's a bug going around. Uh, barley going around here, and uh, finally got me. And I don't feel too bad. I'm just a bit pasty, a little bit tired. Still managed to teach. Still managed to teach since uh, the first half of this podcast a class on Santee, which is never easy if you know what Santee is from the Xingyi uh, style. We did two hours of Santee, and I taught a class two and a half hours today on Tai Chi as well. So, you know, I managed to push through, but if I, I'm a little, if I look a little jaded, that's why. So let's carry on. Uh, last time we looked at lengthy explanation of the Jing from the point of view of a cultivator, um, kind of the difference was a little bit between that and medicine, but I want to finish with this section of it, which is kind of good actually, because I'm changing topics as I change outfits. Um, I want to look a little bit at sort of, okay, how, what do you do about it? So what would a practitioner do in order to consolidate their jing? Aside from practices, because there are practices. There are practices to support the kidneys, um, practices to support the yuan qi that you can find out there. There's even a couple on my YouTube channel. I think I've the sink in the qi practice, and um, I've done a kidney qigong is on there, and maybe even something directly for the Jing, I'm not sure, but there's a few things on there, a few practices you can do. But all of those practices, to me, are secondary to your lifestyle, to the things that you do within your life to ensure that you're not using up that Jing. So first of all, Jing from the point of view, remember we've got the Jing from the point of view of standard health and Jing from the point of view of a cultivator. So people want to build up their Jing and their kidneys to a certain extent in order to be healthy, and then they build up their Jing and their kidneys in a more complex way, no, not a more complex way, a more, more targeted fashion, I don't know what you'd say, in another way, at least, in order to make it strong enough for cultivation practice, which is not always quite the same. I'm really getting the smoke in my face, aren't I? So, it's, sm it's smoke or it's mosquitoes, isn't it? <laughs> which one do you choose? Don't know. I guess smoke doesn't come with dengue fever, does it? So, maybe I should stick with this. So yeah, uh, obviously with regards to the basis of building up your, your kidneys and preserving your jing, I don't really need to go into that, I don't think, from a medicine point of view, because in brief, that would be a good balance between work and rest. So somebody who, who overworks and pushes everything is going to burn out their kidneys, essentially adrenal burnout um, from overwork, overthinking as well. You know, Some people, it's not just physical effort, is it? It's mental effort. But these things can burn out the kidneys. Um, the adrenal burnout will, will deplete the jing. So therefore, we must uh, learn to regulate or, or moderate the amount of effort we put in, sort of uh, correct lengths of time for practice, uh, for rest, sorry, alongside our practice and alongside our work. But at the same time, if somebody rests all the time and they're too lazy, this also depletes the jing as well. So some people, before we've even got into anything intricate when I've met them, it's just because they've led a very slothenly slobby lifestyle. They've sort of sat there 
not doing a lot, maybe playing video games and sat around and then they've had a sedentary job and often they've smoked a lot of weed as well, these same kind of people and they haven't moved enough. And there is definitely a thing that if you, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is something that applies very much to Jing. I think as well, like you can stretch stretch your threshold as well, can't you? So for example, we'll treat it like going to the gym. Say I go to the gym and the first time people go to the gym, they come back and they normally ache like hell the next day. You've not been for a year, you've not been for years to the gym, you go to the gym, you ache. So some people will go, oh, I've injured myself and then I'll never go to the gym again. But of course that's not true. What they're often getting is DOMS, delayed onset muscle stress or, or whatever. So they're getting that sort of pain afterwards because their body's not used to it. So then you go to the gym again, you go to the gym again, and your threshold for what you can take expands. And then eventually, not even that long, is it? You get used to it. And then the gym is not much effort anymore. It's normal. You've normalized it. You've, you've stretched your threshold. And then that's what you do is you continue to stretch your threshold um, with something like physical exercise. It's not so different with regards to the level of effort you put into your life. You can't go from zero to 100 straight away because you will burn out. But it is possible if you've led a very sedentary lifestyle to gradually stretch it out until your thresholds are quite high. And sometimes I've had to explain that to people because they think simply resting is going to build the kidneys. And that's all right. But if your life is already <laughs> kind of <laughs> sedentary and lazy, then maybe more laziness is, or more rest at least, I shouldn't call it laziness, should I? But more of that is not going to help your your condition. So there must be a balance between the two. You must get that balance of, of rest and, and, and activity. Then the other side of it, of course, is dietary. So you can go online and look for all kinds of foods from a Chinese medicine perspective that support the kidneys. I will say, and this is not standard Chinese medical theory, this is how I view it, is I, I consider foods to, like when I explain to people, I consider like main foods and secondary foods. And a lot of what people try to do when they read about these things that support their body is they jump straight to the secondary food. So you'll hear for things like Jing, like sprouts when they're sprouting and seeds and um, stuff like that. These, these, kind of, these kind of things, it's true, they do support the kidneys, but at the same time, you also need what I consider not just the secondary foods, but the main foods, which is no matter what it says in Chinese medicine food therapy about what they do for your organs, you're going to need a healthy diet. You know, I'm talking sort of meat and veg is not the worst thing for you. Some potatoes and stuff, something hearty, stews and casseroles, which a lot of people in Chinese medicine would associate with more like qi or the spleen or something like that, or often for blood. But I think like aside from that, like ignoring Chinese medicine theory for a second, if you don't have a hearty substantial diet that is not too much sugar, not too much processed stuff in your diet, if you don't have that and lots of uh, sort of healthy round sort of hearty meals, then your body's going to be struggling no matter what it says in Chinese medicine those particular foods are for. So for example, if it says, if you have a plate and you've got potatoes and stuff and you've got some meat and you look it up and you're, well, this is for blood, this is for the spleen, this is for the liver, none of this should help my kidneys, it still will if it is a substantial meal, if it is a decent food, if you're not living on rabbit food, right? So all of those other things they list for the kidneys quite often, like your sprouts and, and seeds and stuff like that, and you, like I say, you can find a big list of them. Um, there's a lot that can support the kidneys, but most of them are what I consider secondary foods. So really, you, you should have that main meal and then add those secondary foods in. Because I've, I've 
talk to people about this and then they've gone away and they've they've gone online and they found a list of foods that are good for whatever organ deficiency including the kidneys or including the jing and then they've only eaten that and now the problem is many of the foods aren't substantial enough so the opposite has happened instead of helping them it's depleted them so do remember that if you're ever changing your diet from chinese medicine and not not necessary traditional guidelines but my personal guidelines is first of all no matter what organ you're doing take out the sugar and take out the processed stuff take out the crap basically straight away make sure you have a rounded meal afterwards if you're vegetarian you need lots of very very healthy um, veg to eat and if you're a meat eater you want some nice healthy organic grass-fed meat as well alongside the vegetables no matter what organs or tissues or whatever those particular foods help with you need that first and then you add in on the side the stuff that supports the kidneys if that's what's weak you add it to your meal you don't replace your diet with this other food because otherwise you'll just end up depleted some people make that mistake many times so you've got rest and you've got food and then of course if it's for health then a Chinese medical practitioner can help you out as well and I think I already mentioned that yesterday it's probably splitting up at all can't remember what I said but if you're going to go to a Chinese medicine practitioner do find one that uses Chinese medical theory not Western medical theory in order to treat you the more experienced they are the better so I think with Chinese medicine practitioners don't just go to anybody and don't necessarily even trust someone's certificate you want to make sure they're qualified but it's not the be-all and end-all what's more important for me is to ask around and find out someone who has helped people like ask your friends ask people in your community about Chinese medical practitioners and find one that comes with recommendations because going on Google and looking up your local acupuncturist or herbalist is okay as a start point but it doesn't necessarily mean they're any good it's no different from it's like when I've heard people go for a Chinese medical practitioner or whatever they say oh, I went to someone it didn't work so Chinese medicine doesn't work so different than choosing a Tai Chi teacher or a Qigong teacher if I go to the first Tai Chi or Qigong teacher I find and then you know it's crap that doesn't mean the style is crap what it means is it's such a difficult topic that requires so much study that out of all the people doing it there's a very small number of people that are actually good at it so if you really want to get good at Tai Chi or Qigong you have to shop around look around and find that person that suits you because chances are the person in the local community center is not going to suit you statistically that would be weird if the best person in the world was two doors down from you you know so therefore, it's the same with Chinese medicine. You need to shop around and, and look around and ask some people and figure out who's good. And I will say, if you do find a good Chinese medicine practitioner, um, you know, that's a very useful thing, especially if you're a Qigong practitioner, because they can support you in your, your training for sure. I always advise uh, any Qigong teacher who contacts me, or, or just I'm advising now to all Qigong teachers, if you're in an area and you're not a Chinese medicine practitioner yourself, which you don't have to be, I'm not saying you should be, but if you are a Qigong teacher or a Tai Chi teacher, you should really make friends with the best Chinese medical practitioner in your area. It's kind of your responsibility to look around and find that person because that means that when your students ask you, which they will, how do I help with this condition, you know you can direct them to the best person in the area. So I think it's kind of your duty to do the research because your students are going to trust you and you can't just randomly send them to, to anyone. You know, So I think if you have a weakness in the kidneys of this sort, a Chinese medical practitioner is great, especially if they can give you supporting herbs or something like that alongside the dietary things you're doing and monitoring your rest and activity.
The other side of it is again, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that's not my illness, that's choking on, uh, <laughs> should I move this? Let's put this over here. Maybe that'll keep the mosquitoes away without gassing me as well, for like mustard gas coming in. Uh, they're cheap incense as well, not good ones, just from the local store, so a bit chemically. So, um, yeah, of course, the other thing then is sexual activity as well, which is the, the thing that many people have big fears around, isn't it? Which kind of goes back to what we're starting with, that people have paranoia about Jing, and their sex life is the one that panics them the most. As I said at the beginning, this talk is mostly for males, because Jing is a little different for females. Um, and if women want me to, I can do a further further talk on this. But with regards to, to males, obviously there is a, a strong connection between the burning up of the kidneys uh, qi and the depletion of the jing because of sex. So this is where if you ever pick up any, you know, you go into your local bookshop, especially an esoteric one, or even some mainstream ones, and you type in, in Taoism in the search computer or something, or you go to the section on esoteric arts and you find the Taoist books, a large proportion of aren't they are about sexual practice, about dual cultivation. And most of these dual cultivation books are essentially derived from three or four main classics, I guess you could call them that, that were written that are sort of loosely connected to, to Taoism as far as I can see, but it's very easy to make something like sex sell, especially if it connects the idea of sex to two things. Okay, take sex and connects it to spirituality, all of a sudden it seems way more exciting, and also if you take the idea of sex and connect it to paranoia, so that we need to change our sex and do it in this particular way so you don't deplete your, your jing or your essence, it's obviously going to be a bestseller. So therefore, there's a, there's a push, especially in the West, towards Taoist sexual practices. And when you pick up and read the books, most of them is, yeah, all right, whatever, if that's what you want to do. But it doesn't really um, tackle the issue of jing depletion because... Whilst it is true that ejaculation for males depletes the kidneys chi, or, or we're shorthanding it to jing in this video, aren't we? While it is true that it depletes the jing, the uh, ejaculation, right? So does orgasm, even if separate from ejaculation, because there is a part of there is a part of the jing that creates the sexual fluids themselves. That's true, but even if I go through all those practices to learn to separate ejaculation from orgasm. Orgasm itself still burns up some of the jing. It still burns it up. Then arousal still burns up some of the jing as well. So therefore, the actual act of ejaculating, it's like it's minimal. Do you know what I mean? It's like it it prevents it prevents a small amount of the jing depleting, but you're losing a lot from from arousal and definitely from orgasm. So if I have orgasm, when a male orgasms, then that flash that goes up through the nervous system, that hyperstimulation, burns the kidney jing anyway. So I get a lot of people who come into my classes who have been through the ringer, as it were, of sexual practices and learned to separate orgasm from ejaculation and then have been horribly shocked to find out that even with this they still burn out their kidneys and they're still suffering from this qi depletion. Now the funny thing is that often they don't know when they're younger that this is the case. Now, the reason they don't know is because they get into it in their 20s or 30s when your kidney energy is nice and abundant. So then they learn to separate ejaculation and orgasm from one another, and then they get into their 40s, and they've been living that way, and all of a sudden their kidneys just start to become damaged, and in their 50s their kidneys start to become really bad. And they haven't 
the reason is, is they haven't moderated their sexual activity because they think they haven't needed to because some bright spark told them that if you separate orgasm from ejaculation, then your kidney chi is fine, your jing is fine, and your sexual kung fu is nice and strong or some shit like this. But of course it's not true. And because they haven't moderated it, what happens is all of a sudden, after a little bit of time, boom, they get caught by this problem and then the kidneys get weak. This is why on YouTube or on social media, there's a lot of younger guys talking about this, right? A lot of younger people talking about separating ejaculation and orgasm, but the truth is they're not old enough to get into that stage of their life where they actually experience the, the fruits of their labor, as you were. <laughs> they haven't experienced the outcome of the causes they've put in place because orgasm for males will burn up the gene, okay? It doesn't matter what clever techniques you do, it still does. So therefore, aside from anything else, aside from any clever techniques you want to do, pressing on this part of the body or sucking up this part of the body or tensing this at this point or whatever you want to do, moderation is the answer for males. It really is. It's moderation of sexual activity. Now, this doesn't just go for health, but also for cultivation as, as well. And it's very, very important. And I spoke about this in a previous podcast about um, porn addiction, didn't I? Which is one of the biggest things that burns up people's jing. Now, lots of younger people have this terrible porn addiction, especially those that grew up younger than me, that grew up in the generation of having a phone, you know, got some of you are watching this on, I'm sure, or listening to this on, having a phone, you know, that's got instant access to the internet and, and free pornography or whatever from far too young an age, means that many people are addicted quite young. And the best thing they can do once they get into these arts is obviously drop that addiction. It has to go because the constant arousal put you in, puts you into essentially a very unnatural state. So if you look in Chinese medicine textbooks or anything like this, even some alchemy classics, they talk about moderation of sexual activity. And for somebody in their 30s, which is the most common age someone seems to be listening to these podcasts, or 40s, 30s and 40s seem to be the most common listeners, so I'm assuming a lot of you are in that category. By the time you get to your 30s or 40s, then really for health and also for cultivation, sex once a week is enough. Sex twice a week maybe is enough. Any more than that is too much. Any more than is too much. So that starts to put a taxation upon your kidneys. Now when you say that to some people, they're like once a week, like that's unnatural or something like that, but they don't realize that their entire sex drive has been modified by modern society. I don't want to repeat what I've said in previous podcasts, but basically we live in a day and age where as a male, and females have their other issues, it's not uh, <laughs> turn it into a battle of the sexes, but if you're a male, if you walk out into the, the street in the West, definitely in the West, not so much like I'm in Bali, which uh, still had, you know, there's things going on around sexuality, definitely with the tantric groups, neo-tantric, I'm sure pure tantras will listen to that and scream when I say that, but you know what I mean, like modernized tantric groups and that. But if you walk down the high street, it's not a billboard country, and it's still quite a religiously conservative country in, in many ways, um, as a lot of Indonesia is. So when I walk around down here, I'm not bombarded with billboard after billboard of women in lingerie or women nude or, or whatever on big advertisements all over the place. I mean, you're basically confronted with sexuality on a, on a daily basis. Then on top of that, you've got TV and uh, movies and commercials and the internet and constantly presenting sexuality to you. So you're basically kept in a state of at least subtle 
sort of undercurrent of, a, of a, or of arousal all the time. The undercurrent of arousal just sits with you within your your mind, and then of course if you add to it by working your way through all of the dodgy stuff on the internet, which I believe I heard a statistic recently made up for 36%, 35 or 36% of searched material on the internet. That's a, that's a worryingly high percentage, isn't it? I don't know how they define sexual content there, but 35 to 36% is supposed to be sexual content that's consumed on the internet. If you add that onto the subtle undercurrent of arousal that's always there from society, plus the message that you're only healthy of your sexual, which is definitely given to us in society, then it means that you don't even know what your natural amount of sex is. You don't know, because if you kept an arousal, then you're going to be aroused all the time, and then it's not very long before you start thinking, oh, it's normal to be aroused four times a day. It's normal to be aroused five times a day. It's normal for me to have orgasm and ejaculate twice a day, once a day, or whatever. Like, it, it's not the norm anymore. So then if somebody comes along and says you need to moderate your sexual activity to once a week or, or something like that. It sounds unnatural, sounds difficult. And when I say it to young males, they sound like that's going to be really hard for them to do. But actually, you know, if you were natural in your mindset and natural in your rhythms, then you would find that's not what your body would go to anyway. So I always advise people the same. If you're struggling with uh, addiction to pornography and sexuality, and maybe you think that you're caught in this state of hyperarousal. Well, number one is stop consuming standard media. So you're going to have to stay away from movies and series that are over-sexualized. Like, what's all the popular ones recently? Isn't it Game of Thrones? And don't even know what popular TV is now. Don't know. Whatever they are. But generally, whatever the popular TV series is for adults is quite hyper-sexualized. And there's always scenes of sex within it. So you're going to have to cut that out of your consumption for a little while at least along with movies because you can choose what media you put into your your brain right you can't do much about billboards and, and posters outdoors but if you take out the media you're consuming that's already a lot then the second thing if you're addicted to porn it's really easy to stop don't carry your phone don't carry your phone that's it because People are consuming it. I mean, I, I'm in public sometimes, and people are looking over their phones, and and you sort of, you know, I'm not spying on people, but you accidentally look over someone's shoulder, and people are consuming pornography on their phone, or or at least, you know, titillation through women in lingerie and stuff like this, out in public, like sat on the bus or sat on a bench or waiting in a queue or something like this, or strolling through a social media platform like Instagram or something that is got this kind of, which is basically semi-pornographic these days anyway, with, with a lot of what is presented on there. And people are scrolling this in the public arena. Like, just don't carry it. My analogy that I give is, look, if you want to give up pornography, don't take your phone out. Turn it into a landline, as in plug it into the wall socket and tape up the wire so you can't take your phone out and just leave it there. You'll be fine. I don't know if younger people know, but, I mean, we me and people older than me lived like that for years and we still functioned and we still got around. We got around without a mobile phone and we did quite fine. So leave it at home and turn it into a landline. Now I've said that to people before and they looked at me like, no, no, because I, I need to contact people and stuff like that. It's like, what do you need more? Do you need to know what your friend is having for dinner and where they're going to be more? Or do you need to get over this addiction that is depleting your kidneys to the point that your health is failing and you're going to die sooner? There you go. That's my question I would ask them. And still sometimes they've looked at me and gone, 
I need to know what my friend's doing for dinner. It's like, all right, well, your addiction's worse than you think. So I would say stop carrying it in the same way that if I wanted to give up heroin, that's not a confession, but if I wanted to give up heroin, or let's do something lighter, cigarettes. <laughs> if I wanted to give up cigarettes, I wouldn't carry a packet of cigarettes in my pocket. If I wanted to give up heroin, I wouldn't carry needles and heroin in my pocket while I was walking around because that would seem like something that's doomed to failure. So if you're trying to give up pornography and hyperstimulation from sexual media, carrying a phone in your pocket seems to be a recipe for disaster. So therefore, you can't have a phone. That's the easy way to stop that. Then, if cultivation is something you're serious about, then go find somewhere quiet to be, would be my advice. So take a holiday, something like that. Get out somewhere away from the big city where things are less hyper-stimulated spend time in the countryside and allow your rhythms to reset. Stay away from the phone, stay away from the media, don't consume anything, treat it as a kind of retreat, but all you're doing is just resetting your mind. And after a week or two in nature, wandering around on the beach or around some trees or something, which I've done many times, this just kind of retreats away from society, you'll find that your rhythms will settle anyway. And when those rhythms settle, you'll find that actually the hyperstimulation and hyperarousal will disappear, which means your kidneys will already start to firm up and your jing will already start to consolidate. It's much harder to do this in a busy city where you're hyperstimulated. This then brings us to you know, and I should say, if you manage to do that, then you don't need any of the unnatural things like uh, complete celibacy or anything like that. Like you just, you just don't. Like normality is better. Allow, allow your body to understand normality. And if you look at the things I've told you already, normality with food, not weird diet, just living on seeds and kelp or something odd like that, <laughs> whatever kelp is. It's not something weird. You've just had decent food, good food, no shit in it, something on the side, perfect. A normal level of exercise, not pushing too hard, but not constantly lazing around like a fat Taoist or something like that. Instead, you are moderating so you're active and your rest periods are nice and healthy. Then uh, go out and again, help your mind to find normality with regards to your drive by being somewhere quiet and your body will find the natural cycle for sexual arousal anyway. But once you do that, once it's normal, once you know it's normal rhythm, you'll find it's less than you think. And then after that, then you'll be able to engage in sexual activity without worrying about sort of clever techniques or circulating it here or snorting it up into a section of the brain. Just allow the body to be normal and your jing will be able to sustain the natural rhythm of your sexual activity without it being too much of a problem anyway, okay? So once you've done that, the other side then to uh, Jing for, for males, okay, again, a little different for women, it's, it's a little bit more integral, although a lot of this still applies to women, is stimulation in general, because the things I've talked about here are very much related to your health, but then for cultivation, we want to take that further, right, we want to boost that Jing up as much as we can. So we have to understand that sometimes you'll see this linked to Qi, actually, but I will say it's linked to, to Jing, and then by proxy, then Qi is a byproduct of that, of course. But essentially, um, desires and hyperstimulation of the mind and the kidney energy and the jing go very hand-to-hand, -hand, go hand-in-hand -hand anyway. So if you are constantly mentally stimulated, your jing is going to be depleted. If you are constantly outside of yourself, your jing is going to be depleted. If you are constantly in thought patterns created by your mind, then you're going to be depleted. Now, for someone who's just trying to be healthy, which is already major enough, isn't it? 
maybe you don't need to take these things into account. Maybe you can do it by learning your normal sexual rhythm and eating well and resting well and activity. Like maybe you can do it that way. But for somebody that is trying to maximize it, we need to change some things about our nature, right? So let's look at those in order, if I can remember what I said in order. First one was hyperstimulation. Every time you are stimulated, your qi and your jing are moved into action. So therefore, back to phones once again, scrolling, blah, 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 all that information depletes your jing. So if I sit there trying to build my jing, build my jing, but then constantly streaming this information in front of me, it's going to deplete your jing. So therefore, I need to take that out. Okay, that stimulation needs to go. I need periods of time where there isn't that stimulation. It goes for music as well. It goes for movies. But I think for most people, it's social media, isn't it? I think that's probably the biggest problem. It needs to go. We need to uh, regulate it so that the, the jing is not constantly being disturbed. Next part of that is then uh, not like learning to be inside. Okay, so what I mean in be inside is like literally my awareness is inside my body. I've talked about this a little bit before, but not many people have ever had their mind inside their body. Not really, not for long periods of time or even for a few seconds actually. So having taught Tai Chi and Qigong to a lot of people in meditation, I could say in a slightly inflammatory fashion that most Qigong, Tai Chi and meditation people and yoga people have never had their mind inside their body. They just haven't. Because if they'd had their mind inside their body, then some of the somatic or physical outcomes of having the mind inside your body would be present in their bodies, but they're not. Because when the mind and the body go into the same space, something transforms and some of the, some of the physiological mechanisms of the internal arts appear that most people don't have. So it means they've not had their mind inside their body. So this is why. Putting the mind inside the body relies on one, the mind being within the locale of the body. Okay. Next, it means the mind has to be undistracted and still once it's inside, meaning attentive to the inside of the body. So if I am emotional, I'm not inside the body. So think of it like this. Outside the body, inside the body. I go inside the body, but an emotion is also outside of the body. That might sound odd, because, but it's because it's no longer location-based. It means that my mind is lost in the emotion. It's like the emotion has become another framework, an external framework. So I can sit there inside being really upset or angry, not really in my body. I'm in the emotion. I'm in the mental framework that's created. I also can't be inside my body while I'm thinking of something. Because if my mind is generating thoughts, that is considered an external world that you are within. So the thoughts that I'm creating, the thought objects, create an external place for the awareness to go to. So if I bring my mind inside my body, but I'm still thinking, I'm not in my body, I'm not inside, I'm in the framework of my thoughts. Even if it feels as if the mind is inside your body, it's not. Same with visualization or imagining stuff. It's not gonna help you be inside the body because you're generating a framework for the awareness to be in. This is a bigger deal than you might Think. I mean, it's absolutely huge. It means that your mind has to become still in order for the, the awareness to go into the body in the first place. When you're asleep, you're still not in your body because you are inside your dreams, which are another external version, another external world for your awareness to go to. So it means for a lot of people, if they're thinking or emotional or visualizing things or planning things and then going to sleep and dreaming, 
think about that. When are you ever inside your body? Never. Like, never. It's easy to go through your entire life and never be inside your body. Just never. So therefore, the result is the lack of attention inside my body means that the body is constantly burning up, burning up qi, burning up jing. So jing is going to be depleted. The result of this is on the subtle level, because I'm talking about cultivation level now, those fields are going to open up because those fields are very much connected to your mental state as well as your physical activity as well as the quality of your qi. So they're going to open up, meaning that they are not compressed, meaning that the qi going into that area is not going to be condensed, meaning that your jing is going to suffer, it's going to be weak. So many, many people, especially ones who don't practice, are basically doing that all the time. They're just living outside of themselves. So if maybe I'm understating this, maybe you don't understand I hope I've made it clear how difficult it is to be inside you because you have to get past your mental constructs. Now, the amount of people who, who write things saying, you know, everything is mind, all is mind, it's not really true. Not in the way that I'm using mind anyway. Maybe they have a different definition of the word. But everything that sucks your awareness into it that prevents you from being inside is mind. Once I get past mind, which you can, okay, according to my definition of mind anyway, then the mental framework doesn't create an external reality and the mind goes in. Or the, I shouldn't say mind, should I? <laughs> the awareness, the being, the attention goes inside you, into your body. At that moment, the two interface with one another and then all kinds of things take place. One of which being that the qi and the jing will start to consolidate. Now, as I said, I've taught qigong, tai chi, meditation, yoga. I've not taught yoga, a little bit actually, a long time ago. A little secret of mine. But I, not that I'm known for, but I've taught those people who've come from these kind of arts. And of course, some people have been inside, but a lot of people haven't. They just haven't ever done it. So you have to go through a process of teaching and training them how to get the mind in the body. It's not such a simple instruction. Tai Chi especially, a lot of the reason why people can't get the mechanisms working inside their body and why they believe it's all external is they've never had their mind inside their body. They just haven't. They're... Shouldn't use the word mind. I know you're going to pull me up on it, but it's just words, you know what I mean? But they've never had their attention and their body in the same place or had the attention inside the mind for any protracted period of time. Possibly never. So therefore, the mechanism hasn't kicked off. We then, you know, this is then relevant to the Jing because if you want to consolidate the Jing in a very, very powerful way, okay, like huge, better than all your herbs, better than your diet, better than your rest, any of those things. It's better than anything else if I can get the attention and the awareness to rest inside the body free of mental constructs that are creating a false reality for my attention to go into. And if you can do that, bam, boom, the jing will start to consolidate very, very strong and a lot of the subtle mechanisms will start to kick off inside the body. This includes things like desires, of course, not just sexual desires, but desires for anything, wants or needs. So there's a phrase in Chinese called sitting and forgetting. Uh, Zowang is a, a descriptive name or, or a name for a type of meditation. Some people say it's an overriding term for meditation in general. For me, it's actually a very particular type of meditation related to another type of meditation called Xinjia, um, heart fasting or mind fasting which is essentially based on the idea of taking the awareness and resting it within the body, 
so that when the awareness is inside and resting in the body, three, free from the activity of the mind, then everything will start to consolidate. And do not underestimate how difficult that is. It's trickier than you think. If you've never done it, of course. If you've done some of it, you'll understand. But if you've never done it, it's very, very hard. Once the mind is inside, the jing will start to consolidate. The chi will start to gather as well. The view within some esoteric schools is if you were free from desires and mental constructs and your attention was pure, then your chi and your jing would be full anyway. Now, some people might think that's too like an exaggeration, but I don't think it is. My experience has shown me that that is true. If I wish to build qi and jing very, very quickly or very, very powerfully, then residing with the awareness within the locale of my body, free from mental constructs, causes it to consolidate and gather. Because the thing that is dispersing the jing and dispersing the kidney qi and opening up these magnetic fields that yin qi that let all the energy out, is your mental activity. It doesn't matter what it is. Emotional, positive emotions, negative emotions, mental constructs, imagination, political arguments, disagreements, worrying about other people, desiring this, wanting that, chasing after this. Those are the things that deplete it. And it is only the stillness of the mind that creates the attention inside that causes the sitting and forgetting. Forgetting meaning your mental constructs are gone. That causes the jing and the chi to build up within yourself. So this way you're using a mental quality and a mental practice to generate change within the subtler energetic bodies. So this is basically my biggest advice for reconsolidating Jing. Because say, say some acupuncturist tells you to rest. All right, so my version of rest. I'm gonna lay here in my uh, Bugs Bunny shorts and I'm resting. But while I'm here, I'm humming a tune in my head and I'm thinking about stuff and uh, considering my day and just basically creating a load of external mental constructs. And I may be resting my body, but I'm certainly not allowing my awareness to reside within the insides of my being, meaning that nothing can consolidate. So we must understand this process. Now, without even going into much more <laughs> that's kind of the most important thing that consolidates the jing. So the start point for any practice that builds up kidney qi, say you take something like the maybe the Hui Chang kidney exercise that you can find on my YouTube channel, or there's uh, a few of them, I can't remember what ones I put on there, I do apologize. The sink in the qi practice, for example, I know I've put that on there to help people get the qi down in qigong. Anything I think is helpful. Those kind of practices that I've put out there work better once you've managed to allow the mind to go quiet and the awareness to reside within the center of the form until that jing consolidates and the qi builds up. Because once that happens, it will start to thicken up and then you'll be able to access the functionality of those qigong exercises anyway. So this thing I'm telling you here is almost like a, <laughs> a trigger to enable you to get that other stuff to work, right? And once I get those exercises working, then the combination of the correct attention inside my body plus that practice, boom, will cause the qi and the jing to build up massively and get it nice and strong. So before I move on and go into some of the last parts of this talk on, long talk on jing, um, it's worth saying that the next part of it basically relies on the other part being done. So if you cannot allow the awareness to reside inside the body, as I'm saying, free from mental constructs so that everything starts to gather in, the next bit's kind of pointless. 
um, because it, it follows on from that, in that essentially the Jing is nourished as well from the Qi from above. And sometimes people don't realize this. And most people are familiar with this idea of the microcosmic orbit and they think it's just a sort of practice, maybe, or you circulate something. But it's more intricate than that. There is a, a natural extension of the qi out through the body that will cause energy to sink down through the inside. What that energy is doesn't matter for now, but it will go down towards the base of the body to also fill up that pocket of magnetism that sits at the perineum until this fills up with energy as well, fills up with yang qi. So in order for that to happen, the body has to be in the right condition, which is that the spine is open. And this is one of the things that is very uh, important for your kidneys as well, isn't it? Like we know that when the kidneys are weak, the uh, lower back starts to collapse and the lumbar starts to become painful. But it, the spine goes further than that. Basically what happens is when the kidney energy is nice and strong, and this is and the Jing is nice and strong, this is beyond normal health to cultivators level beyond this, then what will happen is energy will move up into the spine until it reaches the marrow of the brain, and then energy will descend down through the torso and tonify the, the Jing as well from inside. Now, sometimes people have asked about things like restoring the congenital Jing. You hear them talk about the prenatal Jing and stuff like this. And, and people will look for methods of, it, uh, of doing this. If you've ever seen alchemy books talk about it or alchemical groups chatting about it, how to restore that Jing so that it rebuilds. It is possible, and it is possible to nourish it in a really big way to build that energy up. But... Um, it's quite far down the line or it involves being quite good because you have to already have be at the stage where you're able to silence the mind and get past it because not all is mind. So you must be able to get past it so that your awareness and your attention can reside within the body long enough that the Jing will start to still and consolidate. And then combine this with some methods and I assume you within a school, if you listen to where the teacher has methods to descend and send more energy down into that area till that field gets nice and strong. When that is combined with an open back, which is space between the vertebra, release of the nervous system up, uh, smooth flow of qi through the back and everything like this, then the consolidated jing will start to pressurize that channel, especially when it gets to deeper, deeper and deeper levels of your being because your qi is getting thicker and thicker and thicker. It will go up through the body to stimulate the head and then another kind of energy will descend through the inside of the torso to nourish the jing from above. And it replenishes the essence in a way that is beyond what you can do with food, herbs or standard practice or anything like this. But it's, it's worth talking about, I think, because obviously some people are capable of doing it. They've trained enough, they're advanced enough to do it. But for a lot of people, they cannot. It is you have to get through that barrier that is preventing you getting your mind into the body. And when the mind is mind, I shouldn't use the word mind. Okay, I'm falling for that trap. <laughs> Once I can get the awareness, the attention into the body properly, then all kinds of things start to take place that gives me access to even getting that gene to move through the spine. One of my earlier teachers when I was um, late teens, early 20s really, yeah, late teens, early 20s, used to tell me, and I didn't understand at the time what he was on about. There was a little bit of a language barrier between us, to be honest. But he used to tell me that the kidney jing was the spine. And I remember being confused, like, why is the kidney jing the spine? But <laughs> the implications, when I think back to what he was telling me at the time, was basically that when the spine is open and there is enough condensing of the energy, it will cause that circulation that will send an energy down that will nourish 
the Jing on an incredibly deep level, deep enough to certainly to overcome any health issues or anything related to kidney deficiency and depletion, um, and also strong enough that it takes your cultivation to a high enough level that all of the subtle mechanisms within your body become available. Many of these things have been hinted at within diagrams and charts, uh, Neijing 2 and carvings and depictions of Taoist alchemical training. I've even seen it shown on statues. Taoist classical texts talk about it in various ways and in using different terminology, but hardly anyone ever accesses it. Because of the level of prerequisite foundations that a person needs with regards to the quality of their attention and the ability to step away from the desires and the hyperstimulation to a stage where everything is settled enough that the qi gathers in and consolidates those fields is, is beyond what most people are achieving. And partially, I think, because it seems to me like modern life wants you to do the opposite. So here's something else, okay? Actually, it's in a weird order. I should have done this earlier. But light stimulation into your eyes also depletes the kidneys as well. Sometimes people don't realize this. And this is partially to do with this mechanism of the optic nerves into the brain and the cycling of chi up the back and raining down inside. So constantly having lights on your eyes, i.e. phone, once again, in your eyes, TV screens, laptops, computers, will deplete the kidneys as well. So what happens if you take your practice into the dark for a little while. Some people do um, dark room retreats. In Bhutan, I was just chatting very briefly with a guy who's really into that, into dark room retreats. Interesting chatting with him. He's from a Vajrayana perspective, and he does a lot of these. And I only talked to him briefly, but very interesting hearing what he was saying about the results from it. And it's similar to my experiences with sort of Taoist practice in the dark as well, and our chemical training. Where if you take away the light stimulation for a period of time, the first thing is your mind starts to race a little bit, but then it starts to grow still, and then your mind settles, and then it's easier to actually get to the stage where the awareness is inside the body so everything consolidates. And then guess what happens? When you start building chi up inside, visual phenomena of light starts to appear inside your mind's eye. It starts to radiate from behind and fill up the vision, and this is a sign as well that the jing is starting to consolidate. Of course, some people will liken it to Shen, and there is a connection to, to Shen as well, but most importantly is it shows that the energy is developing in the brain enough that it will rain down and start to nourish the Jing as well. So if you add all those things together, because I've talked for ages, I'll try and um, summarize it in order to build that Jing. Okay, I want, and you can almost have skipped all the video up to here, <laughs> healthy balance of rest and activity. The right sort of foods, meaning a healthy diet combined with maybe some of what I call the supplemental foods for the kidneys uh, to build them up. Herbs, okay, from a Chinese medical practitioner, if you are ill, okay, if you, you need help with that, Chinese herbal formulas. On top of that, sexual activity or your desires in general, your sexual desire wants to find its normal amount, meaning that you're not hyper-stimulated, and understand that there is no, almost no point in getting rid of ejaculation and replacing it with orgasm without ejaculation because you'll just burn up the kidneys in the same without even realizing it. It's like it hides it from you and it'll catch you later. So it is the sexual stimulation in general that is the issue. Then if you want to take it further than that, I can start to do things like reducing the, see the incense has gone out now so the bugs are collected. <laughs> there I can start to reduce the light phenomena on my eyes, especially around the dark moon period 
a subject I didn't really go into, but the moon phases have a massive play on alchemy, especially around the dark moon period and around the night time because I want everything to settle more. I want my spine nice and open, okay? Um, and then the most important thing is I want to start to work towards learning to actually bring the attention or the awareness inside my body, free from mental constructs, which will draw you outside, okay? If I can do those things, then the gym will start to consolidate and then the kidney chi will start to firm. And those magnetic fields in your subtle body will squeeze, start to get stronger and move you beyond the purely physiological mechanisms into the subtle mechanisms of these practice, as well as making you feel healthier. All of that can take place if you can get a hold of, get to the stage where the things I've advised here you, that you can do. But especially that one of bringing the awareness in, like I say, is quite rare for people to have managed it because it's difficult, so it takes time. You have to set aside time. You need to take yourself to an unstimulating location or place to at least have the settings there to help you do this, and then the jing will consolidate. And that doesn't matter to me who you are or how bad the kidney jing is. It's still the same, okay? So I'll leave it there. That's my advice for it. No need for putting practices in here to do it because you can find those anyway. I'm trying to show you the qualities that you need in order to get it together. I also kind of discussed uh, subtle mechanisms for a long time, I know, and what I mean by kidney jing and stuff like this. But do remember that, like I say, as a, a caveat at the end of this, the kidney jing is like a colloquial term or just a convenient term and often what we mean is yuan chi really but if you don't understand the difference between the two what I'm saying then jing is enough to understand okay to consolidate the jing so hopefully that is helpful um, I hope so again these are these are podcasts they're just me chatting you know and answering questions they're not my formal classes like I teach in the academy or I teach to my students in person these are just off the cuff off the top of my head unplanned chatting about stuff but if it helps anybody at all, then I'm, I'm really happy. I'm really pleased. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it there. That was a long one, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs>